Over the last few years, um, maybe you've had this experience, but we've gotten letters in the mail from insurance companies, you know, various insurance companies we've had, whether in Virginia or here, or maybe we've gotten an email from a store saying, both of those saying, that our, our names and our credit card numbers and our information had been part of a data breach and 50 million people had been exposed to uh, those who were going to try to steal your identity and um, you need to take action regarding you know, this potential theft. Maybe you've had that experience. We, it feels like we've had it multiple times over the last few years. And I'm gonna shoot straight with you this morning. I get mad, really mad. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I do not like it. And it's not necessarily at the companies. You know, Target, like, okay, they allowed our data to be stolen, you know, whatever. I'm frustrated with them, but I get really, really upset at the people who are trying to ruin other people's lives so they can take advantage and make a little extra money on the side by stealing identities and opening accounts and my name or whatever it may be. I get really upset about that, and I have this strong desire for someone somewhere to find those people <laughs> and bring justice about on those people. I want them to get what's coming to them because they do this sort of thing and it just, it makes me upset. So now you know what happens in my life when I receive one of those letters. And I, my guess is, maybe you don't feel as strongly as I do about it, but a lot of people probably feel the same way. It's very frustrating. I don't want to get overly spiritual and try to baptize my frustration at this this morning, but I, I do think there's something going on there. I think that our sense of justice and our desire for fairness that all of us have, and not just believers, unbelievers have this very much as well, I think it's actually a powerful apologetic for Christianity and for belief in God and for faith in Jesus Christ. Why does a sense and a desire for justice come so naturally to us, and why is it so strong? I mean, I don't think I'm just upset with those people because I'm a believer and I've trusted Christ and I always want righteousness to be done. I think there's something very innate and very natural, even to fallen man, that desires justice and wants things to be fair. One of the most frustrating experiences that you or I can have is to be on the receiving end of injustice. There's a sense of powerlessness and a frustration, and it's like, I, 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 I don't know what to do. I can't do anything about this, and it, it's frustrating. Now, if you, if you read the news at all, or if you follow any of the national conversation or discussion, any of the big issues that are, are current in our day, this idea of justice is oftentimes at the center of those. We as a culture are wrestling with what it means to be fair and what it means to be just. What is right? What is fair? What is true justice? And of course, this is not a new conversation. This is something that has been happening for thousands and thousands of years. Cultures have been trying to figure this out and trying to analyze it. Uh, one moral philosopher I read said that the idea, the concept of justice is the driving concept in the history of Western philosophy. So all the way back to Aristotle and before Christ, people were talking about justice and wanting to know what justice is and, and trying to figure this out. And so this is an important topic. And I'm not gonna try to walk you through the history of the 
discussion on justice this morning because I'm no philosopher and that is not what I'm here for. But the Bible is not silent on this concept of justice at all. And I think one of the reasons or the primary reason that there's, this is so pervasive in human beings is because we're made in God's image and he is a God of justice and righteousness and we are made in his image and made to reflect him and so it, it comes very naturally to us to want justice and righteousness. The problem is we are fallen now, we are broken, we're twisted, we're warped and so our understanding of justice has been broken and warped as well. And so we, we desire justice and we want it but we don't quite get it right, we're, we're off. Sometimes I'm really off, sometimes just a little bit off, but it impacts our conversation on this topic and our understanding of what true justice is. But then Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospels, and he begins telling his disciples, and by extension, telling us as his kingdom followers, that we are to be people of justice. We are to live lives that are characterized by this quality. And we're to live lives that are characterized by this quality in our relationships with others, how we deal with people. We are to be people who cultivate personal justice in all of our relationships, in all of our ways of being in the world, in whatever sphere we're in. We ought to be people of righteousness and justice. God designed us to live this way. He designed Adam and Eve before the fall to live as people of righteousness and justice and uprightness, dealing fairly with one another and with others, and that has been tainted now. But through the work of Jesus Christ, we can begin to practice justice and righteousness in the proper way, in a way that reflects him and who he is. And as we do that, you'll see we can live life well, and this is necessary to live the good life, as we've been talking about, to live a life of virtue and of well-being and flourishing, to live a life that is, is filled with justice. So open up to Matthew chapter 5, if you're not there, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to go back to the Beatitudes this morning and this second triad of three Beatitudes. Remember, we're breaking these up into three sets of three, very uh, Trinity-esque, but that's not why we're doing it. But we're breaking these up into three sets of three, and last week we talked about the first three Beatitudes, verses three through five, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are meek. And those virtues describe and paint a picture for us of someone who is who is humble. And that's a quality that kingdom disciples must be growing in and putting on by the grace of God. This week in verses six through eight, the second set of three, this is going to paint a picture this is going to give us a vision. Remember, there are no commands in the Beatitudes. This is painting a picture for us of the good life, a life that is flourishing and is lived well, and it's a life of justice. Justice must characterize our relationships with other people. Now, there's so much, obviously, we could say about these three qualities that are in verses 6 through 8. And we did a number of things last week as we talked through the first set of three, but I want to adjust what we're doing this week just a little bit to kind of give a different angle on these, these qualities. But I'm going to, of course, explain the, the virtue to you in each of these verses. What is it that we're actually talking about when we talk, talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? And then I'm going to talk a little bit about how you go about acquiring or growing in these qualities. 
What's the process look like to become a person who is defined by hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does that look like? So keep in mind, as we, as we go back to these, I know you've read the Beatitudes a lot, but I, I just want to press this on you again because maybe you're not used to reading the Beatitudes this way, but these are qualities, these are virtues that we grow in and develop over time. And they're characteristic of disciples of Jesus Christ as they bring his kingdom into the present. The culture of his kingdom comes into the present through his disciples as they put on these virtues and these qualities. These are not stages that we progress or or make progress in in order to be saved. Some people have presented the Beatitudes that way. That's not what's going on here. It's not a process that of different uh, attitudes that bring us to the point of salvation. These are virtues we put on as followers of Christ. They're habits of character that we grow into. Think of it like a, like a seed that grows into a tree. The seed requires light, it requires water, and it requires time. But if it has those in the right conditions, it will grow, and that seed will become a a sapling, and ultimately it will become a tree that is very, very difficult to push over or to uproot because it's grown and it's cultivated and it has become strong and ingrained and it's a, it's a powerful tree and it produces fruit if it's a fruit-bearing tree. It's not easily pushed over. That's what we're talking about with these, these qualities. That's what we all want to, to grow in. So today, these three, six through eight, we're going to look at three ways to demonstrate justice as kingdom disciples in an unjust world. I mean, there's no doubt we live in an unjust world. We live in a world filled with people who are trying to get this right, but who are failing miserably in it. And often we do as well. And so we need Jesus to paint a picture of justice to us so that we can live this out among the culture that we're in and among our relationships with one another. So three ways to demonstrate justice as kingdom disciples in an unjust world world. First of all, hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse 6. Let me read verse 6 to you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A few years ago, I got into this, I guess you'd call it a habit. Um, I got into this habit of reading uh, true survival stories. Um, and I, I still enjoy those quite a bit, but I just have not read any recently. If you have a good one you can recommend, I may pick it up and read it. But I read several of these uh, over a period of several years. And one of my favorites is a book. It's in my shelf, on my shelf in there. It's called In the Heart of the Sea. And it's a true story. Uh, and it's the true story that inspired Herman Melville to write the book Moby Dick. So it's the true story behind the story of Moby Dick. And so what happens in this book is in the early 1800s in Massachusetts, the whaling industry was an incredibly significant part of the, the economic culture of that day. Um, people would go out and, and hunt whales and bring them back, and they were used for all sorts of things. So it was very, very significant, very profitable industry in that day. And so there was a whale ship called the Essex, and this whale ship went out to go and to hunt whales And they ended up going all the way down from Massachusetts to the southern tip of South America, and they weren't really finding any whales, but they got this tip 
that there was very fertile hunting ground way out in the Pacific Ocean, like a couple of thousand miles from South America. And so these guys in this ship, I mean, remember, we're dealing with wooden, you know, ships, not much, uh, not much better probably than the Mayflower, right? And these guys are hunting whales on these ships, and so they round uh, the southern tip of South America, and they head out into the Pacific Ocean, and they go these couple thousand miles out in the Pacific Ocean. There's not much there, but they found this very fertile hunting ground. Well, while they are there, a bull whale attacks their ship and breaks it in half, and the men are lucky to escape, and they manage to get into their lifeboats, but unfortunately, they are way out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and they're in these lifeboats, and they can't travel that fast, and there's a number of men in the boats. And so they really have no choice, but they try to begin making their way toward the coast of South America in these lifeboats. And this is, the book is the story of what happens to them. Now, I'm not going to spoil the thing for you, but the great conflict of the book is whether or not they can get enough food and whether or not they can get enough water to get back to South America. I mean, they're in these tiny lifeboats. There's a bunch of men on them. They don't have many supplies. And obviously, there's not a whole lot of fresh water around a couple thousand miles out in the Pacific Ocean. And so in this book, there are harrowing descriptions of thirst, extreme thirst, and extreme hunger that these men experience. I thought about reading one of them to you this morning, but it might be a little distasteful, honestly. <laughs> I mean, these guys were put through it on this boat. And it brought them right up to the edge, and some of them went over the edge and lost their lives in this experience. Now, when you read this, we don't appreciate what it's like to truly be hungry and to truly be thirsty. I mean, we turn the faucet on, we go to the store and get a loaf of bread. It's easy. And so we don't appreciate how necessary food and water are to our daily lives. But you really get that sense as you're reading this book. There's the two most basic needs that we have, and you cannot make it very long without fresh water, and you can't make it very long without food. It's awful. Now, we typically don't think of someone who is hungering and thirsting as living the good life, do we? I mean, when you read this description of these guys in those lifeboats, I don't immediately think, man, those guys are flourishing. They're doing well. But look what Jesus says in verse 6 here. Blessed, flourishing, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Obviously, he's not speaking of physical bread and of water here that sustain physical life. But what Jesus is saying is that the good life is lived by those who want righteousness at the most fundamental and base level of who they are. This is a driving desire for them. Those men in those lifeboats were driven every single day they got up, and this is what they thought about. This is what they dreamed about. They wanted food. They wanted fresh water. It was the driving desire in their lives for those months. And Jesus is saying here that a life well-lived is driven by a passion for righteousness. So what does Jesus mean by righteousness when he says this here? Well, there's a couple of options. Some people read this and think that Jesus is describing a very Pauline righteousness. When you read this word in Paul, 
Oftentimes, it means someone who is declared righteous, justification. They receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of his work on the cross by faith. And so this person here, if that were the case, this person would be hungering and thirsting for salvation, for them to receive the righteousness of God, to be declared righteous by God. The major problem with that view, and that's not the view we're going to take this morning, is that this word righteousness doesn't mean that in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Look down at chapter 5 and verse 10. We'll look at this next week, but blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the good things they are doing, for bringing the culture of the kingdom into the world today. That's what they're persecuted for. Look down at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the righteousness that Jesus is describing that we are to hunger after here, the righteousness that describes someone who is living the good life, this is a real, ethical, moral obedience to God's will and commands. This type of person gets up in the morning and they want nothing more than to obey Christ and to live out his word day to day. This is a hunger for conformity to God's word and a thirst for genuine uprightness in all of my dealings with others. I want to be this type of person. The person being described here, they don't just know the rules. They don't just have a list of all the ingredients that make up a righteous person, a righteous life, and then they sort of go down and they check those off one by one as they attain them. This person wants every aspect of life to be conformed to the will of God. Now, this is certainly backwards in our culture, isn't it? I mean, to describe someone as living well who wants righteousness is crazy to most people. Most people think that to live well is to be free from any sort of moral restraint, to be able to, quote, do whatever I want to do. That's true flourishing to most people. But Jesus says here that living well does mean doing what you want to do, but it's having your want to conformed to the righteousness of God. It's actually not seeing righteousness and obedience as a burden and something that, oh man, I have to do this. It's actually growing to the point where you are desiring this so much that you would call it hungering and thirsting, and I want it. I want it more than anything. Now, let me be clear here what we're not talking about. We're not talking about moralism. Maybe some of you are hearing this, and you're hearing moralistic talk. We're not talking about moralism when we talk about the righteousness here. Moralism creates moral standards that are not based on God's word, that are outside of God's will and word. It creates extra standards that then we try to uphold. Righteousness in that case, in the moralism case, is defined by whatever I think is best and whatever my community values more than God's will and words. Oftentimes, moralism is strict, and the rules and the regulations go beyond what the Bible says. One author described it this way. I think this is helpful. Moralism is deceptive 
because it pretends to pursue righteousness, but does so in a way that does not act with reference to the righteousness of God. And in this, it fails to submit itself to the reign of God. Having the highest standard isn't always righteousness. It can actually be a perversion of righteousness where I make my own standard and I have this this, uh, standard that I want to live by rather than submitting myself to God's word. And so we want to be people who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness and what his word says about how we should live. And so how do we develop a taste for that? And that's really what we're talking about, right? A taste for it. Not just a list of things that we have to obey and commands that are given in scripture, but we want to be people who desire to live this way and want it. Well, obviously that has to be by the Holy Spirit. He has to create these desires within us, and that's the work that he does. He points us to Jesus and causes us to love him and see his glory and long for him and for his word and his commands. But how does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit put these desires and grow these desires within us? Well, we're talking about food, a taste for this, so let's think about food. Most of us don't naturally want to eat healthy things, do we? (laughs) At least me, I do not naturally want to eat healthy things. Broccoli does not always taste the best to me. I don't have a hunger for it. I will eat it if I am required to, but I do not love it. But did you know it's actually possible, it's actually possible to go from only liking unhealthy food to genuinely having a taste for healthy food and wanting nothing but healthy food. That's something that can happen in our lives. And I'm definitely preaching to the choir here. (laughs) But how does that happen? How does that take place in your life? Well, first of all, you have to know the value of healthy food. You have to catch a vision for what a healthy lifestyle and a healthy way of eating would look like. You have to see who you could become if you were to eat healthy, if you were to exercise regularly. Then it may be hard at first. You have that vision out there. You know what it looks like. You've been inspired by that vision, by the value of it. You know you should. But then as you begin, it's not real comfortable the first few times. You don't have a real taste for it. But then slowly, as you continue to soak yourself in that vision of what that life looks like, a healthy lifestyle, you begin to grow or you continue to grow in your understanding of why it's so good for you to eat a healthy, eat healthy day in and day out. Then slowly, over time, you move from being a person who doesn't like it to slowly developing a taste for it. And then your desires begin to change. And then you don't wake up thinking about Cheetos. Then you wake up thinking about salads. (laughs) And now you're a different person. And now your desires have changed and your tastes have changed. And the end goal of that is you will taste something that brings satisfaction to you. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The end goal here is a life well-lived that results in satisfaction. And so through God's word, if you don't have a taste for righteousness now, understand what a healthy lifestyle looks like. Go to his word, 
Soak yourself in the motivations for a righteous life. Soak yourself in the glory of God and in the goodness of his righteous commands and begin to develop intellectually an understanding of how good this is and how honorable it is. And then begin to act rightly in your life through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, by the power of his word, and your desires and your tastes will change and you will grow in it. And keep that end goal and that vision of satisfaction in the good life in mind. And in a couple of years, you'll be a different person in less time than that. It's amazing how quickly the Holy Spirit works in us when we submit ourselves to his vision of righteousness and what the good life looks like. It will come by God's grace. And so... That's our first way to demonstrate justice, to live a life that desires justice, that desires righteousness and uprightness in all of our relationships and all of our dealings. And the second way is to show mercy to others. This is in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is interesting because we often think of justice and mercy as opposite ends of the moral universe. You can either be just or you can be merciful. It's like the yin-yang thing. They're sort of opposites, dark and light. You can either show mercy or you can love righteousness, but righteous people don't really show mercy. Merciful people aren't all that righteous. But Jesus does not see it that way at all. This vision of the good life here has to have both of these at the same time. Jesus came to bring both justice and mercy. And he says here that living a life that is merciful is necessary to be a just and a righteous person. So what does he mean by merciful? In verse 7, when he's calling us to be merciful, what does he mean by that? What the most fundamental level, being a merciful person, means being concerned about people in their need. It means you're sympathetic, you're compassionate toward others. Bethany's younger sister and her husband, they visited here several times, but they've just, over the past few months, they've become approved as foster parents in South Carolina. Uh, And they've already had one uh, little child in their home, actually brought him up here over the holidays. But when I think about that and think about opening your home up as a foster parent, in many ways, I think that act and that mentality that leads a person to do that defines being a merciful person. It's one way to define it. It's not the only way, but it certainly is one way to define mercy. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'm going to flesh out mercy a little bit here with with three different ideas, and I think all of these are very helpful when we think about even just a foster parent and that visual image of being a merciful person. First of all, mercy is directed outward toward people, specifically people in need. We're not talking about being merciful toward God here. We're talking about the way I perceive those around me. So the person who is merciful is able to look out and see events and circumstances from the other person's perspective. They're able to put themselves in the other person's shoes and imagine what it would be like to be that child who is in need of a place to stay for a couple months, who has a difficult home life. And they're in need, and this person is able to have compassion on that individual because they see their need and because they can put themselves in that other person's shoes. That is what Jesus is calling us to here, that virtue, that ability. 
But the second concept about mercy is that it's not just compassion. It's not just sympathy. It's not just a feeling. Mercy expresses itself in concrete actions. A foster parent doesn't just feel sympathetic toward foster children. They act on that and open their home up to a child who's in need. This word that Jesus uses here, it's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews 2, verse 17, where Jesus is called our merciful high priest. Now, certainly his mercy did not stop with feeling sympathetic toward us, did it? His mercy expressed itself by being our high priest in incredibly concrete actions on our behalf. So actions are necessary more than just an emotional reaction to a miserable plight. But the third thing about mercy here is the true motivation for mercy is found in the fact that God has shown us mercy. You don't feel like a very merciful person? You need to go back to the fountain of mercy and understand what he has done and the mercy that he has shown us. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, there's this incredible story that Jesus tells us, and I think it defines mercy or lack of mercy for us. In this story, there is a man who is owed a minor debt, and he's very harsh with this person who owes him this debt, and he demands that this individual pay this debt to him throws him in prison. This is after this man has been forgiven this massive debt, years and years and years of accruing debt to his master, and his master simply forgives that debt because this man is in a miserable situation. When the master finds out about his lack of forgiveness to this other man for a pretty minor offense, the master utters these words to him. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, mercy is like a waterfall. It flows down, and it flows from God the Father to us, and then it flows and hits others from us. So mercy is compassion and sympathy demonstrated in concrete actions to others, motivated by God's mercy to us. Now, we have to be careful here. Because again, our culture has shaped us so much that we tend to think of mercy as just being nice or just being tolerant. And that is not the virtue that Jesus is calling us to here. What he's calling us to is quite a bit different than the way our culture would define mercy or do define love. Today, mercy means accepting someone's lifestyle, accepting what they're doing, just approving of it, no matter what. No matter the details of what their life looks like, it's just accepting of it. Mercy is kind of like tolerance, and love is more like politeness, just being sweet to other people. But Jesus here calls us to mercy right after calling us to righteousness. A life well lived is a life of mercy, and it's also a life of righteousness and uprightness and a hunger and a thirst for God's will and for God's word. It is a merciful thing to desire that those around you pursue righteousness. It's a merciful thing 
that those to desire that those around you pursue righteousness. Ultimately, mercy means that my disposition toward others is I want their good, even if it's not easy for me. I want your good rather than my own comfort. Man, it's going to be hard to say something to this person about, you know, whatever it may be. But it's not about my comfort. It's not about the difficulty of it. It's about genuine love and mercy. And so I say something because I want to put on this virtue here. And I want to be merciful. And I want to be righteous. Whenever we watch medical dramas on TV, which we do from time to time, I'm always fascinated by the scenes in those medical dramas where someone has cancer or some horrible disease and they don't know it yet. They just know they've been sick and they're not feeling well. And the doctor and the audience knows it and the doctor knows it. And the doctor has to go in and tell this person, you know, you have cancer and you're going to be in chemotherapy for the next six months and it's going to be incredibly difficult, um, you know, and, and they have to... They have to express that to this individual. And I'm always fascinated by how they say it and how the writers of the particular show uh, put words in this doctor's, this actor's mouth and what they're gonna say and how they're gonna approach this and the demeanor that they're gonna carry into this. It's always an interesting thing to me to watch that. But imagine if that doctor walked in the room knowing that he has a life-saving treatment for this person and it's gonna be hard but knowing that he has it, and out of a desire for niceness and to protect himself and the difficulty of that circumstance, he just didn't say anything. He let it go. Mercy does not ignore difficult truths. It embraces them. But it does so in a way that recognizes we've all got spiritual cancer. We're in this boat together. I'm not more righteous than you are. We're all in need of God's healing power, and that's the motivation of mercy. I have received mercy, therefore, I show it to you as well. So how do we develop this virtue? Well, we recognize that we will receive mercy at the last day. We understand that God will show us mercy, and then we demonstrate that to others. It's, it's bringing the future into the present. It's understanding by faith what will happen in the future to kingdom disciples, and it's bringing that reality into the present and bringing that culture to the way we deal with other people today. The future promise of God's mercy invades the present. And as you meditate on that future reality, as you soak yourself in the grace of God and the mercy of God to be shown to you, then your disposition toward others and the way you handle other people will be reshaped and formed to become one of mercy and righteousness. That one fact changes everything. Lastly, pursue purity of heart. Pursue purity of heart. There's always a temptation when you talk about righteousness to put on a show of righteousness for other people here. There's always that temptation. In fact, Jesus addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6.1, he goes into a whole section here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Now, in Matthew 6, Jesus gives us three different religious activities. We pray, and we give, and we fast. And the problem in Matthew 6 is not with the activities. He wants us to do those activities. The problem is when your inner motivation for doing those activities doesn't match the activity and the purpose for the activity. So we are not to pray in order to receive acclaim from other people. That's not the purpose of prayer. And when we practice prayer that way, there's a, there's a disconnect, there's a fracture between our motivation and our outward actions. It's hypocrisy. And Jesus is saying here to not be that way, but to be pure in heart. Purity of heart is when the inward motivation matches the outward action. It's when you're singularly focused on God, and so your desire matches what you are doing in your life. These authors said this, So purity of heart must involve integrity, a correspondence between outward action and inward thought, a lack of duplicity, singleness of intention, and the desire to please God above all else. More succinctly, purity of heart is to will one thing, God's will, with all of one's being. So how do we develop this? Well, we recognize, first of all, that so often you and I are like the dog that's behind the fence next to the road and the car drives by and the dog chases the car and barks and barks and barks and thinks he wants it more than anything else in the world. And then the car drives off and then another car drives by and the dog does the same thing to the next car. And so we tend to go from thing to thing seeking satisfaction and seeking fulfillment And we're erratic and frenetic in our lives. And Jesus here is exhorting us to find your satisfaction in one thing. Be pure of heart. Be devoted to God and his will alone. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you later in the Sermon on the Mount. A purity of heart brings a life of well-being because of what it says in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Certainly this is a future promise, but it's a promise that right now, as you pursue God with everything you have, with singular devotion to him, where your desires match the activity that you're doing, you will experience God's presence in a significant way. You will grow in your knowledge of him. And that leads to a life that is well-lived and is satisfying and is good. So by God's grace and as his followers, let's pursue these qualities that ultimately make up justice. Pursue lives of righteousness, mercy, and singular devotion to God. Now, I'm going to pray in just a second, but we're a little over on time, so I'm going to nix the last song, if that's all right. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to welcome one member into our church body, and then we'll be dismissed, all right? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace. We're thankful for these words from your gospel, Gospel of Matthew. I pray that you would help us to grow in these things, help us to grow in these virtues, to put them on, help us to catch a vision of what life looks like when it is lived with these character qualities as a part of who we are. Help us to hunger and thirst for these things, Lord, more than anything else in the world. And we can't 
conjure that desire up on our own. It has to be motivated by your grace and by your Holy Spirit. So give us that now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.